Hello and welcome to the Footprint 40, a podcast that gets under the skin of the sustainability issues affecting the food service sector. My name's Nick Hughes, Footprint's Associate Editor, and in each episode I'll be joined by my fellow Associate Editor David Burrows to chew over the news and views making the headlines in our industry, in company with a special guest. For our latest podcast, we were delighted to be joined by Professor Susan Jebb, one of the country's leading authorities on health and diet and current chair of the Food Standards Agency. The Footprint 40 is kindly sponsored by Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners. David, it's great to be back for another episode of the Footprint 40 and with another stellar guest, if I may say so. Yeah, I'm really excited about speaking to Susan Nick. I mean, she has... An enormous to-do list, um, and a huge scope, um, and she's set up, setting about extending it as well. So we can talk about everything from food safety through to school food standards, eco-labeling, how the FSA is evolving, moving in to cover sustainability and health. So yeah, it should be a really good conversation, I think. Yes, and for those listeners who may not be familiar with Susan's CV... She spent a distinguished career in academia where she's been at the forefront of research into the treatment of obesity and interventions to encourage healthy and sustainable diets. She also previously chaired the Department of Health's Responsibility Deal Food Network, which many industry listeners will remember, and was an advisor more recently to Henry Dimbleby's National Food Strategy. So a really influential person, a very experienced person. Susan was appointed FSA chair in June last year at a time when the agency arguably has a more important role than it has done for many, many years, as we shall hear. So let's listen to what Susan had to say. Susan, welcome to the Footprint 40. It's great to have your company and thank you for sparing us your precious time. I'm sure it's a busy time uh, for you personally and for the Food Standards Agency at the moment, uh, particularly in light of the recent five-year strategy that you've uh, produced. But before we get into the detail of that strategy. From a personal perspective, um, you've had a distinguished career in academia and you've obviously advised numerous governments over the years. But what in particular appealed to you about the the role of FSA chair? Well, hello, Nick and, and David. It's really, really great to uh, great to join you. Um, oh, gosh, why? Well, I've, I've known FSA its entire life and I guess always rather admired the work that it does. Um, I think it has a, a really privileged role as being a, a non-ministerial government department. So it's there as part of government. But actually, it has this very privileged position to represent consumer interests in, in wider policymaking and, if you like, stand up for the, for the public voice um, and put consumers ahead of political pressures. And I think that's, you know, a really extraordinary position. So um, I admire it enormously. And it was just, um, you know, a a tremendous opportunity to really be part of the FSA. And I guess right now, because it feels like such a critical time for food policy, um, so many things happening. Obviously, we've had the uh, Dimbleby review last summer, government really thinking for the first time in, you know, 
in far too long thinking about what our food policy should be. And I guess my um, uh, thoughts are that FSA can play a really important part in that. Um, It can be part of the sort of glue that joins up bits of government. And um, so, yes, it it was too exciting a moment to miss, Um, though I'm still slightly surprised and utterly delighted that they appointed me. Well, as I mentioned, it's it feels like a really important period in the agency's history. Um, uh, As I mentioned, the five year strategy recently published. The thing that really jumped off the page for me, as I'm sure it did for many of our listeners, is that health and sustainability is back on the FSA's agenda. Now, where are we? 2002. If I rewind 13, 14 years, um, I was I was covering health at the grocer. And um, I remember distinctly in the lead up to that 2010 general election, I interviewed uh Andrew Lansley, who was then Shadow Health Secretary, and a lady called Gillian Merrin, who was Labour's public health minister. And they both had very different visions for what the future of the agency might look like. Um, under Labour, Labour looking to con- for the FSA to continue its role um, in sort of delivering nutrition policy and also to start looking into sustainable diets as well, whereas the Conservatives much more looking to pull back from nutrition and to to move that into a more kind of voluntary industry-based function. Uh, Obviously, as we know, as uh, you know, what happens, the coalition government gave to power and the FSA did, it it did feel like the FSA pulled back a little bit from that nutrition agenda. So what's, this feels significant, what's taken you back in that path? What's taken you back towards health and sustainability? And why is it so important now? Well, let, let me start that by saying the FSA's mission is and always has been food you can trust. And food safety is at the absolute heart of what we do, and we will never compromise on that. If uh, if we don't get it right on food safety, we don't have any licence or space to, to do anything else. So that that's that's crucial. However, I do think it's right for FSA to be involved in health and sustainability as well, um, because these issues really matter to consumers, increasingly so. Um, but there are also big government agendas around reducing diet-related ill health, you know, obesity strategies, but more generally reducing the burden of cardiovascular disease, um, and around achieving net zero. And food is absolutely vital in both of those. And so when you've got an organisation like the FSA, which, you know, is, is the only government department that's going to put food first, second, third, fourth, fifth on its list. It seems to me crazy that it is not actively involved in, in those conversations. But it's important that we recognise that the policy leads for health and for sustainability rest with the Department of Health and Social Care and with DEFRA, respectively. That's, uh, you know, that was part of the of the change. Certainly the health was part of the, the uh, changes that Andrew Lansley brought in. That wasn't FSA choosing to step out of that area. That was a political decision. And that's, you know, right that ministers uh, make those decisions. Um, but I... What we make very clear in our strategy is that there are things the FSA does that we can marshal in support of those other government policy agendas. In many ways, I think it's absolutely right that 
policy making on health and sustainability rests with ministers. But there are things that FSA can do. It's science and evidence, for example, which we can bring to bear on this. It's um, relationship with industry, which, you know, we, we've done a lot with industry to bring them into compliance and raise standards on safety. Perhaps we can now do that in relation to health and sustainability. And back to our core purpose, reflecting consumer interests. People want access to healthier and sustainable food. And they want that in a way that's affordable and accessible. And we need to be championing that in government. So I think it, it's absolutely right for us to take it on. And I personally was very clear when, you know, when I was uh, applying for, for the job as chair that I felt that that was the right thing for FSA to do. And I hope the fact that I was appointed means that uh, somebody at least shared that uh, aspiration. But we, we've also got to, you know, I've got to balance my ambitions for what the FSA might do with the harsh practical realities of, of resourcing. You know, we're in a time of huge financial constraints. And so a lot of this is going to be about us thinking really, really smartly about how we can um, make the most of things we're already doing or how we can do sort of double duty on some of, on some of the tasks we already take on so that we put a, a health or a sustainability um, uh, lens um, across that work as well. Susan, it's a lot to consider, isn't it? When you move from just thinking about food safety and then bring in, as you say, net zero and health. And you've had experience in the past through the responsibility deal, for example, of working with industry. There's been a fair amount of criticism of some of those voluntary deals and whether industry... Um, really does want to change as much as I feel and we feel that it needs to around health and sustainability and net zero. Do you feel in, maybe you're in a stronger position now as chair of the FSA than you were maybe working on the responsibility deal to to engage with industry or do you feel industry is in a much different place to when it was a few to where it was a few years ago to engage on these issues i think both of those observations are true um i think the fsa has a status um uh, and a position and a credibility and a track record um which which gives it um uh, added likelihood of achieving change compared to the responsibility deal which was sort of set up as a, as a new committee. And, and these things always take a while to bed in and find their ways of working. Um, but the second thing is I think industry is in a somewhat different place. Um, and that's partly because government itself is in a different place. So let's think about it in relation to health, because that's what the responsibility deal did. That's what most of my previous work's been around. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time getting industry to reduce salt with voluntary targets. We introduced the calorie reduction pledges. And there was some, but pretty modest progress. What we've seen over the last few years is a real acceleration in that progress. Still not fast enough for my liking, but nonetheless a marked acceleration. And that's because government itself has started to get a bit tougher and to recognise that there are some things that are potentially 
are best done through voluntary mechanisms, but there are other things that need to be done through regulation. And so, and of course, these these aren't completely separate; they work together. So, what one of the consequences I think that we've seen already of the plans to introduce the restrictions on promotions for HFSS products is an acceleration of reformulation. Um, you know, I think I saw a Special K as now you know cut the cut the salt, and I'm thinking we've been asking for this since 2005. Um, so I think it, we, we are in a different place. And what we shouldn't do is to say, oh, well, the responsibility deal had a lot of difficulties, so we'll never try that, that again. I think we have to learn from that, strengthen some of those things. And for me, that, that's, there's, there's a few things there. One is about um, clear targets, um, which which we didn't have. The second is about um, transparent reporting and in as real time as we can make it. PHE have made, done some work on that, but not nearly frequently enough and not at a granular enough level. So we need better data in the system. And thirdly, crucially, we cannot rely on voluntary um, arrangements to do all the heavy lifting. They've got to be part of an overall portfolio of policies. And I think that, you know, if we can create that sort of environment, then there absolutely is a place for some voluntary measures. And I think in the way that that that's true for health, I think it will also be true on, on sustainability as well. One thing that's really struck me about the soft drinks in industry levy, for example, Susan, is how, um, yes, it's obviously, you know, so far seems to be resulting in a reduction in sugar consumption, but it's the reformulation that it's driven. It's incentivized businesses to dip under that threshold for the tax in order, in order so that their products don't, um, you know, can be sold, uh, can be sold cheaper. And it's led to reformulation across the board. Yeah, it's a great example of it is easier to change products than people. Um, You know, amidst all of the publicity and all of the talk about the soft drink industry levy, there's also been a huge amount of discussion about the harms of too much sugar. You know, nobody can possibly be unaware that sugar is not good for your, you know, is not good for your health. And yet, actually, there has been minimal change in in consumer behaviour in relation to uh, sugary drinks. All of the uh, all of the pro- virtually all of the progress has come through reformulation. Yeah, and I think um, that might lead on quite nicely to one area that Nick and I wanted to ask you about, Susan, was around eco labelling, for example, which is gaining a lot of traction at the moment. Um, some of it based purely on carbon, for example, others going wider to look at fair wages, water, pesticides, chemicals. Um, And I think you make an interesting point around the shifting people's behaviour versus changing the products. Because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of expectation on these labels to change consumer behaviour. But I think you speak to those who are involved and those who have researched academically these these labels, and it's the changes in the production 
that are really going to be stimulated a bit like they've done for the eco labels for fridges freezers and things um i mean do you see you know eco labeling it's really beginning to take off now do you do you see that as a key driver well clearly eco labeling is taking off but it's taking off in a hundred different directions all at the same time and that is not good for consumers um so you know the the fsa's first interest in that is that consumers need to know what's in their food and need to know where it's come from and to understand the credentials and i think you know whatever's on the package the labeling or indeed other ways that industry communi- communicate with consumers you know we we at the fsa have an interest in that being correct and uh, helpful to people so that's the first thing i'd say the second is i totally agree with you that um it's a, it's a little bit about informing consumers. If we want people to make more sustainable choices, then they have to have the information in order to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, yes, that matters. But I agree that it drives change through the supply chain. Um, and we saw this with front of pack nutrition labelling, with companies introducing their own internal policies in order to ensure that their products were the healthiest they could be within their category. And I think we'll see the same with with sustainability. However, um, the other area that that concerns the FSA is about the underpinning metrics. Because if you have companies developing their own calculations and own assessments of uh, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions or whether it's uh, water use we could very easily get into a position where we were comparing two products where the calculations had been done in completely different ways. And that is going to be misleading to consumers. So we are keen at the FSA to um, see greater consistency in this whole area. Um, We're keen to see um, better ways of um, uh, assuring the underpinning data and then making sure that the ways in which that information is presented and offered to consumers is helpful and meaningful so that they can be empowered to make more sustainable choices. There's a lot of work to do there and I'm very, very conscious that to some extent we're already in policy terms playing catch up because industry has seen that there's a competitive advantage here and they're they're off with it already. So um, I think it's a really important area for us to get on top of and we're working closely with with defra on this at the moment yeah that sounds really positive i think nick will be delighted that he doesn't if, if you get standardized metrics as well nick will be delighted he doesn't have to read so many pieces from me about life cycle assessments um so yeah no that sounds really positive susan i mean the challenge is is getting it right and and it will not be perfect um but i think we've got to make sure that you know we don't let perfect be the enemy of the good and uh you know we can refine over time but i think the issue about consistency and trust that people can trust and understand uh, the data uh, is really really important yes and we should make the point shouldn't we that henry dimbleby in his national food strategy envisaged a key role for the fsa as a sort of repository for data on the nutritional and environmental impacts of foods sold by businesses so so you know this is you have that uh, and i know you were involved in advising henry Susan, but um, clearly Henry saw a key role for the FSA there. And it sounds as though there's appetite 
and capability within the FSA to do that kind of work. Well, uh, once you start talking about data in the food system, you're talking about a very, very, very big piece of work. But I think what government has really sort of woken up to is the potential for data to yield new insights into what's going on in the food system, to enable us to make smarter policies, to enable us to track what's going on. And so um, there's work ongoing between DEFRA, the Department of Health and Social Care and the FSA to scope out what this food data programme might, might look like. Um, it, it's early days, um, but it, I am very, very excited about it. Um, at the moment, it, it probably means 100 different things to 100 different people. So we've got to get some consensus. I'm keen that we work with data that already exists in the system and we don't go around asking people to collect new data, but that we bring it together in a consistent way and make it available to others. Because we know that, you know, transparency is is a really potent lever for change. Because if we can get that data out there in a consistent and transparent way, then all kinds of organisations will start exploring that. um, And that will become, uh, become a lever for change. What we also need to do, I think, is identify some particular kind of um, case studies or, 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 or um, you, uh, areas of, of use. What can it actually deliver? What can it actually do? Because what I don't want is for us to spend forever and a day gathering and assembling every piece of data going um, and then wondering what we're going to do with it. So I think we need some very applied case studies, which probably only deal with a small bit of the system, perhaps in a few different places, and then we build it up from there. So the FSA has got quite a lot of experience in in handling data from industry. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in lots of the work we already do, not least things like the food hygiene ratings, for example. So I think that's one of the um, assets that we can bring to, to th- having these conversations. Well, that's a perfect uh, link into the topic of food hygiene and food safety, which is obviously the FSA's core function and i'm assuming will remain at your core function is ensuring food is safe to eat and um you've already touched on the resource constrained world that we live in we're also in a very fast changing food landscape as well aren't we uh, accelerated by the pandemic we're seeing the growth of dark kitchens for example and and rapid delivery and selling via social media how does the fsa balance the need to ensure proper regulation and business compliance with you know managing scarce resources and, and and targeting them in the most appropriate ways? Well, firstly, we do it by recognising that uh, we need to evolve and adapt our systems for assurance because uh, we we just can't can't keep up doing it the way we've we've always done it. Um, so what the, the good thing in food safety is that actually businesses know this really, really matters. And so for the most part, our job is to work with businesses to help them provide safe and trusted food food for consumers. Um, I think that also means that we um, can actually improve compliance by working with and through other people who are also trying to assure standards within within the food system. And we're currently exploring how we can, um, if you like, add value on top of those existing assurance schemes where you have got businesses which for the most part have got very, very high levels of compliance already. 
So um, there are a couple of things we're trying to do. Firstly, to use data, again, to try to better understand where the highest risks are in the food system so that we um, uh, have a sort of proportionate regulation where we put most of our effort into the highest risk businesses. Um, And secondly, to see where we can add value on top of existing assurance mechanisms, working with earned recognition so that that businesses that do do the right thing get some benefit and get some reward from that. Now, that's a, a great thing to aspire to, but of course, we absolutely have to maintain consumer confidence and consumer trust um, that, that businesses aren't, aren't getting away with it. Um, uh, and so the, the, the principles that local authorities will always be able to go in and inspect, unannounced inspections, all of those things will continue. We're running a few pilots at the moment with some local authorities um, with a kind of sort of dual verification system at the moment, just to make sure that we're, we're getting it right. And we'll try and learn from those and develop a, 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 a more wholesale approach to our to our regulatory um, systems. You touched in the strategy about a possible role for food aggregators, um, which I, pre- I presume by which you mean the likes of Just Eat and Deliveroo, for example, who are increasingly providing a filter through which consumers purchase food from restaurants or takeaways. What what kind of role do you envisage for those kind of companies? I mean, we talk. I mean, I think Just Eat now displays food hygiene ratings for for its restaurants on its website. Is that the kind of thing? Is that the kind of role that they can play? You know, connecting the FSA with a very fragmented food service sector. Absolutely right. Um, I mean, I see these online delivery platforms a bit like um, a bit like the big supermarkets for for sort of you know uh, in home food food purchases because they bring together in one place a whole load of of manufacturers or smaller producers. Um, and in the same way, if we can work with the online platform then we can actually get to this, as you said, this very fragmented um, supply chain. It's always been difficult getting data from the out-of-home businesses because many of them were so very small and there just wasn't any any place where they all came together. So I think that if we can um, work with them, then again, they will push change back through their uh, supply chain. So we've seen this, as you mentioned, with food hygiene ratings, um, uh, where they're displayed on the platform. We've also managed to get the platforms to um, not accept uh, businesses that have got some of the lowest uh, food ratings. I'd like to ratchet that up a bit higher, but it's a start. Um, and we're talking to them about how we can also um, use their influence to uh, offer or even nudge customers to healthier and more sustainable choices. Um, so we're at the start of that conversation, but I, I do think that potentially they'll be a useful partner for us. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. The idea of some of these big platforms being able to nudge consumers as well um like like you say they can take on the role the size of them of a you know a supermarket a tesco a a sainsbury's so great to tap into some of that reach that they've got with consumers isn't it yeah well when people are making choices i think you know it's a bit like having calories on menus we've seen that uh, policy come in let's make sure that's prominently prominently displayed and in the future when we've got the system for eco labeling worked out properly nick then we'll be able to tell them what's the more sustainable choice as well yeah and i, I do sense that these platforms are getting i don't know about you nick but i sense they are 
a little bit more involved and interested in sustainability than they were maybe even two or three years ago. The calorie labeling, I forget which one, maybe Just Eat now is encouraging those on its platform to display calorie labels. I do sense, Nick, that they are you know, getting a bit more involved in some of the aspects of sustainability and the reach and power they can have. Yes, I think that's right, isn't it? And I think another area is packaging, isn't it? Which is something you've written about extensively, David, and and how some of these companies are acting almost as wholesalers for their customers and in doing so can perhaps push them towards more sustainable packaging options or even be the kind of pivot for reuse models uh, on the and the like yes which obviously has a you know obviously has a food safety angle there as well as well susan it seemed to be a year or so ago maybe 18 months ago there was a lot of um there was a lot of uh, anxiety around reusable packaging bringing either your own containers or um having sort of a deposit and refill system that seems to have died down now is is that something is that an area the fsa is is looking at because the big supermarkets certainly are. yeah it absolutely is and our science council have been looking into us uh, for example at uh impacts on food safety of changes in packaging they're also beginning now um to do well they're doing a piece of work which is looking at the implications of climate change for food safety. Um, so that's, I guess, part of our trying to look ahead and anticipate problems before they before they actually arrive. Just going back to online online businesses, and we talked about you know some of the the big players, the the aggregators. But the other thing that we've got our eye on in the FSA is the number of very very small businesses that are now out there. You know, during the pandemic something like 30 i think it's 37 percent of the new food businesses that registered were from private addresses um and that's great that they've registered absolutely delighted uh, but what's in my mind is that there might be quite a lot of others that haven't registered and that might be completely unintentional they just didn't know they were needed to and we're launching a bit of an effort to try to bring those those on board um but uh you know thinking how are we going to assure standards in these thousands and thousands of micro businesses and again it comes back to taking this very risk-based approach Um, so let's look at what they're actually selling let's look at how they're selling it and who they're selling it to so that we can um, really support local authorities in um, working out where to invest their very very precious resource um, so that we get the the best protection for the public that we can for you know a a fixed resource yes absolutely and i mean speaking with environmental health officers who as you say are extremely stretched already in terms of their resources but food sold you know produced in a private kitchen and then sold via facebook marketplace or or ebay and as you say they might not always be registered as food businesses very very hard to track um also very hard to to then understand whether the right allergen information is being provided um, to the end consumer. So, you know, it's clearly it's clearly potentially an area of problem problem. Given our conversation about aggregators, what role do you think the likes of Facebook have here and and and, and eBay? Uh, I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago where largely, I mean broadly speaking, the platforms were kind of saying it's not really our problem, you know. Um, People, it's the responsibility of the person selling the product to ensure that they're registered 
and to ensure that they're meeting all regulatory requirements. Is that is that a kind of tenable position going forward? Well, it's uh, it's often people like to think it's not their problem. Um, I'm very conscious at the FSA that if there was a significant food scare, everybody would think that it was my problem. So I'm quite keen that we uh, that we try to sort it out. So we need to help businesses to do the right thing. And um, I think the allergen labelling is a really good example of that. Um, so when Natasha's Law came in, we did a lot of work, seminars, provided guidance, toolkits to really help businesses to be in the best possible shape to be able to meet their legal requirements. Um, we're uh, working now on, on, on precautionary allergen labelling. Um, that is very, very challenging, um, particularly for small businesses or, you know, uh, um, hospitality, working perhaps in, in very small kitchens. Um, we really need to um, find a way of balancing the responsibilities of businesses with the responsibility of consumers who have food hypersensitivities. What role do they have? Um, and so we're um, at, actually at our June board meeting, we're going to have a paper um, updating on where we are with the food hypersensitivity work and thinking about what are the next steps in relation to precautionary allergen labelling. Um, so I think we need to get the guidance, the tools out there and then work through all available operators to get it ultimately to the businesses, because it is the businesses producing the food that are responsible for this. Um, the rest of us can only help and support them to get it right, but it is their legal responsibility to do it. We've touched on a lot of areas already, Susan, but lest we forget that the FSA has expanded responsibilities since Brexit, taking on some of those functions previously carried out at EU level, um, like novel foods approvals, for example, um, and obviously there's a, there's a role that the FSA is playing in terms of uh, official controls at, at, at borders. How much of, uh, I mean, coming back to the point about prioritizing limited resources, but, um, how much of a challenge is that prioritization exercise? And, and particularly with those new functions you're taking on, are you, do you feel as though the agency is slowly coming to terms with those new responsibilities and, and, and you're, you're confident that you're able to get going to, deliver all of those new responsibilities? Well, it is a big um, a big increase um, in work. There's no doubt about that. We have had some increase in resource to enable us to um, take on new staff. We've taken on several hundred new people to enable us to, um, to fulfil these roles. Um, my predecessor as the FSA chair, Heather Hancock, did a fantastic amount of work in helping FSA to prepare to take on uh, these, these new roles. But the reality is, you know, um, uh, always always harder than you think it's going to be. Um, and we're continuing to, to learn and evolve our processes. Um, the um, uh, trade um, is, is obviously a big topic. And, you know, we, we're a, the FSA is a very small part in, in dealing with all the global trade issues. But on something like regulated products, then we have, a, you know, a really, really substantive role. At the moment, what we've done is essentially to just adopt the EU system for regulated products into, into what we do in the UK. Um, but over time, I think we need to work out whether that really is um, fit for purpose and, and indeed whether it's the best it, it can be. Um, we absolutely want to support um, innovation for industry, um, but we also have to continue to protect consumers and balancing those two isn't, isn't always easy. You know, industry always think we should, we should be faster. 
where I think we can um, do more is to work more closely with them so the industry know exactly what it is we require in you know what what is the evidence we need for it to go through the regulated products um, uh, service and that they don't spend time and money um, doing things which are not you know, are not crucial to their their approvals. So I'm hoping that we're going to step up our engagement with industry um, and provide them with a bit more support there. We need to learn as we go. Um, and uh, one of the things that um, Emily Miles, our chief exec, and I are both very keen on is that we regularly do sort of lessons learnt and we, we have a sort of continuous improvement model rather than just, um, you know, plugging away and, and hoping it will it will just get better i think we need to very consciously um stop reflect learn listen to the experience of stakeholders and and try to make it as good as we can but you know it, it's enormous we are trying to do for the uk what efsa used to do for the whole of the eu um so i think people do have to recognize what a lot of work that is yeah i think you're the, striking the balance i think um it is really important susan and one there is a lot of pressure for example from industry those involved in cultivated meat for instance at the moment saying in europe and the uk regular regulators are holding things up whereas you know there's availability in places like singapore now um how do you strike that balance between you know progress and innovation and obviously your, your your core role as you know ensuring that this food is safe and indeed sustainable as well because there are still questions around the sustainability of cultivated meat so singapore i think is the only place that has approved uh, cultivated uh, meat products so far a chicken uh, product um, and uh, but we are expecting that we'll receive those sorts of applications i don't think i don't think we have yet but i'm expecting that they will that they will come um, I think we have to absolutely recognise their potential, um, uh, both on health and sustainability, um, but we also need to check out those those credentials. So this is a good example, I think, of where FSA can do some of this double duty action that I mentioned earlier. So first and foremost, we need to make sure that these are safe. And we shouldn't just assume that they are, because these novel processes can generate unexpected and sometimes unintended consequences. Um, So I think we will need to think very hard about whether we're approving individual products or whether we're approving processes. We need to work work through that one. Um, We need to make sure they're safe. And then I think we need to be asking what are the health implications of this? You know, is this a healthier um, version of the thing it's designed to substitute or not? Um, Is it a more sustainable version? or not. Um, And those cannot be taken for granted. Um, What can we do to help? I think that um, we need to make sure that industry absolutely understands the process. You know, typically these things take a couple of years to go through. So it's important that industry recognise that and that they start early. You know, they can't complain that we don't approve it in, you know, three months when actually they've been developing this for, you know, a decade or more. So we need to, industry need to understand what they need to do. They need to understand the criteria that they need to meet. And that involves us teaching and training and and supporting people to make their applications as good as they can be. We're also thinking about whether there's work that we or or UKRI, the UK Research Agency, 
might perhaps do, which is essentially pre-competitive research, which would, um, you know, then be um, available for many businesses to use, which might help support some aspects of their applications. That's a conversation which is in progress at the moment, but it's something I'm quite supportive of, because I think, you know, let's do it once, let's do it really well, and, uh, you know, there'll be uh, efficiency and savings for everybody. Um, So, yeah, an evolving process. Let's talk briefly about school food standards, Susan, which is yet another area. I mean, the, the list seems endless, but where the FSA's reach is expanding. Um, the recent levelling up white paper sets out plans for, for a joint project with the Department for Education to design and test a new approach uh, for local authorities to ensure compliance with school food standards. And, and we know historically they haven't necessarily been especially well monitored. So what can you tell us about what that approach might look like and the work that's already underway in that regard. I think this is a really good example of how we are going to evolve the FSA's role in the health and sustainability arena and a good example of how we can um, add value elsewhere in government. So school food, the responsibility for this lies with the Department for Education. But if they're trying to um, assure school food standards, who better to turn to than the Food Standards Agency? You know, the clue's in the name. Um, And so we're working very closely with them to see uh, what we can do. The food standards have been around for a good while. Some schools are doing amazing, fantastic things, you know, producing food that not only meets the nutritional standards, but is, um, you know, sustainably sourced um, and has a whole load of other really high quality attributes but some schools aren't and there's a concern that some aren't meeting the standards i'm very keen that we don't go in with just a sort of black and white pass fail on standards what i want is an assurance mechanism which supports schools to do the right thing and this is a bit of a motto i guess of of the ethos we're trying to create in the agency let's help people let's support people to do the right thing um, so that again you build up this continuous improvement mechanism There is suggestions about how this might work, and what we've done is we've brought together a whole group of stakeholders, policymakers, academics, uh, school caterers, um, uh, and, and brought them together in in a working group to design a number of different pilot projects. We've been absolutely delighted at the number of local authorities who've come to us saying they'd really like to be part of these pilots and they'll start in in September when the new school year starts. Um, We'll run a few different schemes and we'll learn from that and I hope by the end of it we'll then be able to make some proposals to the Department for Education about how they might best assure school food standards. I hope too that we might learn some wider lessons for standards elsewhere in in the public sector Um, and again as part of the discussions around the uh, around the food white paper there's been lots of of conversations around government procurement Um, and I would you know government has phenomenal buying power when it comes to food and I'd like to think about how we can um, assure ourselves that the the buying standards which exist are actually being met. Yes absolutely when we think about the out-of-home sector in particular I think it's something like two billion pounds a year is spent by the by central government procuring food so huge leverage there enormous and, and we saw with school food you know when the, when the standards for school food came in caterers responded by producing pro- either new products or differently packaged or portion size of products to meet those school food standards and then they were available to the rest of the market as well just 
think what we could achieve if um, the government buying standards really became the standard for what healthy, sustainable food looks like. Um, it could be a real um, lever for wider change in the system. Um, so I'm quite excited by that uh, by that opportunity. We've been talking about food for almost 40 minutes now, and we've not touched on prices, which in the current climate, we must. It's the cost of living crisis. Clearly, it's beginning to bite in a very real way for a lot of people. And some of the stories one reads about the choices people are having to make are heartbreaking, really. Now, clearly, the FSA can't set the price of food or influence the price of food. But, but the risk of more people suffering from food insecurity, does that impact the FSA's work and objectives in any way? It's a hugely, hugely important issue for us. I mean, we're there to reflect consumers' wider interests in food in government. And all of our regular surveys and trackers tell us that uh, food prices is going up and up uh, the agenda for consumers. And it was already very high. Price was already, uh, you know, something that that uh, was a big influence on people's food, food choices. So the first thing we're doing is, is monitoring um, levels of food insecurity, and they are higher than we have ever, ever seen before. About 15% of respondents in our last nationally representative surveys uh, were classified as, as food insecure. And then the consequences of that cut across all three elements of our of our uh, mission. So if people are um, worried about not having enough money and not having enough food to eat, then they might take more risks on food safety. They might be more likely to buy food that's very near to its sell-by date and or to use it after its use-by date. So there's an increased risk in relation to food safety. There's also a risk in relation to authenticity. Um, we're very conscious that the potential for a rise in food crime to go up um, is, is very, very real. And our National Food crime unit are very vigilant to that to that possibility we haven't seen that yet but we're we're conscious that that might happen because food has become an increasingly valuable commodity particularly when we're thinking about a, a livestock in particular and then on the third part of our mission healthier and more sustainable food of course there is a real concern that um, people will feel that they're unable to access healthier and more sustainable food because they fear it's more expensive and you know it's incredibly important to me that um, a, a food system which is offering safe healthy and sustainable food has to be a food system which delivers for everybody and everybody has access um, uh, to those things not just the people who can who can most afford it so extremely worried about food prices in in short and yes it is very much um, very relevant to our work the challenge for us is that we what I've just described is us seeing the consequences of people um, uh, not having enough money. Um, we have very few of the levers um, to sort that out. What we can do, though, is to um, uh, use our voice in government to make sure that the potential consequences of this situation are very, very clear. Um, and I hope that we will um, we will do, do a bit more of that. Terrific. Well, we, we shall watch with interest as the FSA... Watch the next board meeting. So at our, our next board in June, uh, there'll be a specific paper in relation to food affordability where I have um, we've challenged the executive to really come forward with some proposals to say, well, are there some things that are within our remit that the FSA could specifically do? And we'll be marshalling all the evidence and insights that we've got from some of our ongoing research to really inform those decisions. Well, it's 
Good to see the FSA really finding its voice under your stewardship, Susan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for what's been a really enjoyable and insightful discussion, David. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, and yes, best of luck continued good luck in your role thank you i'm sure i'll need it um uh you know i'm never one not to be ambitious but um even i recognize that uh, there's going to be some tough choices ahead it's going to be evolution not revolution but i i really hope that um the fsa can can step up and make a very positive difference uh, for everyone in the uk a huge thank you to our guest susan jeb And thank you to Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners for your support in making these podcasts possible. This podcast was produced by the Footprint Media Group. To find out more, visit foodservicefootprint.com. Thanks for listening.